And the reading is taken from Matthew chapter 16, and it can be found on page 984 in the Church Bibles. And it starts at verse 21. Jesus predicts his death. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might grant us humility so that we might see and understand in an understanding why it was that Jesus had to die, why he must die, he said, that we would um, understand and take on board how it is that you are able to forgive us. Amen. Well, it wouldn't be difficult to come up with uh, assessments of Jesus by the great and the good of the past and of the present who assess Jesus' character and his teaching with great admiration. One contemporary writer has described Jesus' character like this. Here was a man who exemplified supreme unselfishness, but never self-pity. Humility but not weakness, joy but never at another's expense, kindness but not indulgence. He was a man in whom even his enemies could find no fault, and where friends who knew him well said he was without sin. Alfred Lord Tennyson said, his character was more wonderful than his miracles. In other words, he thought having that consistent character was a greater achievement than the, all the miracles that he did. And then there is his teaching. No one has ever taught quite like Jesus Christ taught. His teaching was profound. It touches the deepest needs of men and women in every generation. It is as relevant today as it was when he uttered it 2,000 years ago. He explained that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. He pointed out that it is from within, out of our innermost being, 
that all the things that spoil our lives and the lives of others proceed from. It's from within that the mess that we see in broken lives and in broken relationships originates. He thought, as he said, it is from within, from inside, from a person's heart that come all the evil ideas which lead him or her to do immoral things, to rob, murder, commit adultery, be greedy, etc. Walter Lippmann was someone who wrote uh, in the 60s, reflecting on the hopes that there were at the end of the Second World War. He wrote, We ourselves were so sure that at long last the generation had arisen, keen and eager to put this disorderly earth to right and fit to do it. We meant so well, we tried so hard, and look what we have made of it. We can only muddle into muddle. What is required is a new kind of man. Now, similar observations are numerous. We have simply and repeatedly discovered the hard way, the truth that Jesus taught about human nature 2,000 years ago. However, all that uh, um, Jesus also said that a man could be born again and could have a new start. He claimed to have the power to change the very heart of human beings and thereby turn our selfishness to service, our hate into forgiveness, our violence into compassion, our greed into generosity, and our pride into humility, and our lust into love. Now these are not idle words. Countless men and women all over the world, in the past, and today, and here, have encountered that living, risen Jesus who has transformed their life and who has given validation to what he claimed years ago. I don't for a moment think that D.H. Lawrence ever discovered it, but he did desire it. If only, he wrote, we could have two lives, the first in which to make our mistakes and the second to profit by them. So why the claim, then, for the character of Jesus? There was no one lovelier than Jesus, nor could there be, said Dostoevsky. And the shrewd observer of his teaching, uh, E.V. Rue, who was a classicist and who came to faith through translating the Gospels, he observed with J.B. Phillips that they had a ring of truth about them. In fact, he's quite an interesting person. Well, for me, he's interesting. He used to watch me play football. He was the father of my headmaster. But uh, he, he was somebody who, uh, he's famous for translating Homer's writings from Greek into modern English in the Penguin Classics series. And when he was 60, he was asked, having been a lifelong agnostic, by a penguin to translate the Gospels. His son remarked 
It will be interesting to see what Father makes of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. The answer was soon forthcoming because within the year, Dr. Rue had become convinced of the truth of the Christian faith and was converted and joined the church. And when Phillips asked him, did you get the feeling that the whole material was extraordinarily alive? Rue replied, I got the deepest feeling. My work changed me. I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God, and they are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. And Phillips concluded, I found it particularly thrilling to hear a man who is a scholar of the first rank, as well as a man of wisdom and experience, openly admitting that these words, written long ago, were alive with power. They bore to him, as to me, the ring of truth. But why must Jesus die the way he did? He was very emphatic in that reading we had this morning. He opens up Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now the word must means it is necessary. It is a very emphatic word. It is something he has to do. But why? Crucifixion was the most awful way to execute someone. If you even begin to think about what it might be like, we stop very quickly. It is awful. The Roman writer Cicero said, it was the most cruel and shameful of punishments. Let it never come near the body of a Roman citizen, not even near his thoughts, or eyes or ears. The victim was held down on a cross whilst lying on the ground. He was nailed with fierce, rough iron nails. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then slotted into a socket in the ground, and there he would hang in the intense heat with unbearable thirst exposed to the mockery of the crowd, and he would be there for hours, maybe even days, and his life would slowly and in an unthinkably painful way drain away from him. It was a long, lingering, agonising death. And it's, of course, where we get the English word for extreme pain, excruciating from. And yet Jesus is resolute. He must go along with this. Why? In the Gospel records of the Passion of Christ, these few days, these last few days of his life, and particularly his last day, they take up a third of each of the Gospels. That's an extraordinary proportion of any biography. 
Martin Luther, who struggled all his life to find peace of mind and peace with God, becoming more and more dis- depressed and despairing, suddenly saw the answer when he said, if you want to understand the Christian message, you must start with the wounds of Christ. So, if you're uh, unclear or confused as to why Jesus must die, then join the club. Plenty have gone before you. The novelist A.S. Bryant wrote, I was moved by the Christmas story, but I rejected the atonement, which is just um, a technical word for how God makes us at one with him through the death of Jesus, on the grounds that I did not need it or want it. God had sent his only eternal son into the world to die for us, but the story did not make it at all clear what for meant. Simon Peter, at this very uh, early point in his following of Jesus, is similarly confused. In the previous passage that we've had read to us, when Jesus asked him up there in Caesarea Philippi, in the very north of Israel, asked him who he was, for the first time Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus comments that that's down to God opening Peter's eyes. So with that wonderful flash of insight, he is able to see who Jesus is. And Jesus congratulates him for realising this. And yet, when Jesus then goes on to explain the fundamental reason why he had come into the world, that he must go to Jerusalem, to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter protests, never, Lord, he says, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, who had just congratulated him, turns to him and says very forcefully, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. So in the space of just a few moments, Jesus says to Simon Peter, blessed are you, and get behind me, Satan. But Peter had gained insight into the person of Christ, but he hadn't yet understood the purpose of Christ. And he had good reason to be confused. Being a Jew, he had in mind, in his mind, always associated suffering with sin. If you're familiar with John 9 and you know the episode of the man born blind who Jesus restores his sight to, the crowd say, whose fault is this that this man's been born blind? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? And Jesus' reply was that it's neither of their faults. But with this kind of faulty frame of reference, you can see why it was impossible for Peter at that point to conceive of the Messiah, the Christ, suffering. So he must have thought either Christ was not the Son of God, 
though Jesus had welcomed that attestation, or God was not in charge, that others could frustrate and thwart his plans. So Peter is, this, is in this dilemma. In Jesus, he realises that God is revealing himself on earth. And yet now this Jesus is talking about suffering and dying, and particularly death by crucifixion, which was to the Jews a sign that you were cursed by God, according to Deuteronomy. Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. So how could Christ, in Peter's mind, the Son of God, talk about being crucified? To say the least, he is puzzled. Now we don't know whether Peter was one of those who was watching Jesus be crucified. But if he was, surely he must have wondered whether his faith in Jesus had not been a huge mistake. But then he was not alone in being confused and puzzled and doubting. Because two other followers of Jesus, on the Sunday, that weekend of Easter, felt the same way. They were walking along the road to Emmaus, talking to one another, they were and a traveller came alongside them as they were walking in the same direction. They were rather despondent and dejected at the death of Jesus. They conversed as they walked along, not looking closely at their companion. And it was not until Jesus, the risen Jesus, said, how dull you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into glory? And with that explanation, for them the penny dropped and they looked and saw Jesus. And so too for Peter. What Jesus had said now registered with him at the same time as he then physically encountered the risen Jesus. As a Jew, his mind would go back to his heritage to make sense of all of this to the significant events of his people. They'd go back, for example, to the day of the atonement where the high priest took two goats. One was slaughtered as an offering for the people's sin and the other one, the scapegoat, had um, the high priest laid his hands upon the goat as if to transfer the sins of the people onto it and then it was released out into the wilderness carrying the people's sins away with it. He would have also thought back to the Passover when an unblemished lamb was taken and killed and its blood splattered on the doorposts and the lintels of their home so that when the angel of death passed over, the firstborn in each house would not die. God judged, God's judgment did not come to that house. Now in both the Day of the Atonement and the Passover you have an animal acting as a substitute for human beings. And perhaps Peter remembered those opening words of, um, I suppose, Jesus' advanced publicist, John the Baptist, who said of Jesus when he encountered him by the Jordan, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So perhaps for Peter, the jigsaw is, become, is, is all coming together. And that's why Jesus died, Peter must have reckoned. 
He became our substitute. He died in our place. He came to bear the guilt of our sins. In fact, Christ's sinlessness, far from disqualifying him from death by crucifixion, became the one essential qualification for him becoming our sin-bearer. Later in life, Peter wrote with great simplicity and clarity. We have it in 1 Peter 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as gold and silver, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Or in the following chapter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Almost succinctly, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now these words of Peter are clearly echoing the words of Isaiah who wrote 700 years before with remarkable foresight in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds you, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Inspired by God, he saw sometime in the distant future how God would come and bear his people's sins. Now it's worth looking at the meaning of the sufferings of Christ a little bit more closely because even when we realise that there is a there is a, a connection between sin and the sufferings of Christ. Many people, including many professing Christians, are still confused about the whole purpose of the cross. Peter sums up the purpose of the cross in just five very short words. We've just read them. To bring us to God. And we'll get things further clarified when we look at just two things that Jesus uttered as he was dying. The first was after three hours of agony. He has the cry of dereliction, as it's called. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Or why have you abandoned me? Christ's death was more than exa an example of how to suffer. In fact, it was meant to... Uh, if it was meant to be an example of suffering, we wouldn't have been impressed. There are plenty of martyrs who have gone to their, their death with a much more triumphant attitude. Christ's death was simply not to impress us either. I mean, we might be impressed with the bravery of a Buddhist monk who sets fire to himself. He doesn't achieve anything. What Christ was doing was suffering a torment that no martyr could ever endure. He was bearing our sins. 
he endured, to use an unfashionable word, hell. It was when he was on the cross that he experienced hell, not in the period between his death and resurrection. We can't begin to imagine what it would mean for God the Father and God the Son who have been perfectly united for all eternal eternity, eternity to suddenly be separated by this ugly black cloud of sin. The nearest we get to it is with the death of a loved one. But that's what happened. That's what happened there on the cross. And in seven, in seven stark monosyllables, Paul wrote that God made him to be sin for us. And that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God the Father and God the Son are one. You cannot separate them except on the cross when Jesus became sin in our place as a substitute so that we might live. A rather tragic example of that happened that illustrates that happened just two Sundays ago in Pakistan when a church warden sacrificed his life to save the congregation during a Taliban attack. The news report reads, in an extraordinary uh, act of heroism, a parish warden stopped an Islamist terrorist from detonating a bomb during Sunday worship at Christ Church, Yohanabad, near Lahore, Pakistan. Fifteen people were murdered during twin attacks at Christ Church and the neighbouring St John's Catholic Church on the 15th of March 2015. But the heroism of this guy, um, of Zahid Yusuf Goga, pictured with his wife Akash and their three children, prevented further bloodshed. Eyewitnesses to the attack and Pakistani church sources report the anti-Christian terror attacks began when four men entered a shop close by the two churches in the predominantly Christian neighborhood at approximately 8 a.m. They bound the shopkeeper and waited in the closed shop until 11 a.m. when approximately a thousand people were worshiping in the two churches. After killing the shopkeeper, one man wearing an explosive vest entered St. John's at 11.15 and detonated the bomb in the narthex. Moments later, a second terrorist entered Christchurch and tried to enter the church. Mr. Goga wrestled the bomber to the ground and the bomb exploded, killing him instantly. His sacrifice, of course, meant that those inside lived. And then the other cry is the cry, it is finished, Jesus said. It's one word in the original. He says it in a loud voice. It's a triumphant explanation. It's finished. It has been accomplished. The purpose for which he had come had been completed. And that one word was often the word stamped across a bill that had been paid. The transaction had settled the account. There was no more debt to pay. 
In the 19th century, amongst the land-owning gentry, the custom was for the first son to go into the, to inherit the estate, the second son to go into the military, and the third to go into the church, often the church of which either the older brother or the father was the patron. And one such clergyman was a canon Fawcett of York. He owned land in Ireland, and apparently, during one of the potato famines, some families on his estate were unable to pay their rents, and they wrote begging him to let them off. He replied that he could not possibly do that. It was wrong. It was a bad precedent, and he could not possibly make any exceptions. They must pay their bills in full. However, he enclosed with the letter a slip of paper. It was a cheque for more than the amount that they would need to pay him what they owed him. That's just a tiny picture, another way of looking at what Christ achieved on the cross in order for our debt of sin to be paid, that we might be forgiven and God's justice upheld. In the Gospel, there's a strange and remarkable sign which accompanied this cry on the cross. In the temple, a model of which is, uh, is there, in the temple, there is, uh, just to, uh, this is a model of the tabernacle, but the temple's based on it. But basically, the important bit to notice is the holy place and then the most holy place. And between them, there was a curtain. And that curtain, that veil, was only uh, entered once a year by the high priest, entering into what symbolized the presence of God on earth. And he could only enter it upon the blood of animals sacrificed for his and the people's sin. That uh, veil acted as a big no-entry sign. But here, as Christ utters, it is finished, it's completed, that temple curtain, that veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. A very obvious sign to any Jew that now, Entry to the presence of God was 24-7, not just once a year. Entrance to the presence of God was not for some special holy people. It was actually open to everyone. Voltaire said, of course God forgives sins, it's his business. But there's no of course in the New Testament. What the New Testament reveals is that God can forgive sin, but only through the cross of Christ. I think many of us are only too conscious of the barriers which we set up between ourselves and God. Barriers which cause us to uh, think that he is remote and distant. We try praying, but our prayer just kind of bounces back off the ceiling. We try reading the Bible, but we struggle to make any sense of it. Isaiah gives the reason for our predicament when he writes, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. You see, here is the curtain or barrier of sin. But when Christ utters, it is finished, when it's, he utters, it's paid for, the curtain in the temple is torn down. We can 
now go in. So you might wonder whether there's any other way God could possibly forgive us. But if there was, why would he himself go through the agony of separation within eternal members of the Trinity in such a painful way, physically, emotionally, socially, spiritually? Why would he have suffered the torments of hell if there was another way? The Apostle Paul writes, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. In the world of Paul's day, in the Greek world, in Athens, um, if there was a, a quarrel between two parties, then a mediator was appointed to reconcile them. The mediator's task was very clearly defined. He must faithfully represent both parties and then bring them together, whatever the cost to himself might be. In this case, Christ alone has represented both God and man because he alone was both God and man. He alone is the bridge which touches both sides and he has brought us to God at the infinite cost of his suffering and death on the cross. There was no other way. Some people wonder whether it matters at all. Well, there's no ever better evidence than the reality of God's judgment than the cross itself. Just look at Christ's agony. Listen to those cries of dereliction. Christ was experiencing judgment. There is the reality of judgment. And Christ has died to save us from it. Some people think, well, okay, interesting, but can I just kind of put it off? Can I come to Christ whenever I want to? Well, certainly coming to Christ can never be forced on anybody. God wants us voluntarily to respond to his love. He can't force people to love him. And you do, of course, have to come to him after sobering, a sober thought. But once you've got to the place where you know that you should come to Christ, then putting off that can have a hardening effect. So that when you're next called, as it were, next reminded, next have a prick of conscience, it will become much harder. So it's important not to procrastinate. And maybe you think you could never keep it up. Well, you couldn't. But Christ in you, through his Holy Spirit, is there to enable you to. So what do you have to do to become a Christian? In one sense, nothing. Christ has done it all. He has borne our sins. He's paid the price. It is done and finished. And therefore he offers it as a free gift, which we simply have to accept. We say, I am sorry for my sin and the sins that I've committed. Thank you for bearing the punishment for me. Come into my life as Lord and enabler. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, may we this morning have appreciated the necessity of Christ dying on the cross so that our sins could be both punished and forgiven and that we could have the prospect of reconciliation with you. We pray that we might either fully appreciate it or if we never have, that we might come to embrace it. Amen.